Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Psalm 146, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Let us do so now by uh, standing together and singing hymn number 147.
Please be seated. Let us pray together. Great God in heaven, how thankful we are again to be in this place, singing your praises, adoring your majesty, bowing before your grace and your infinite love. Uh, Father, it is uh, so good to know you as a merciful God, to find in you a friend of sinners, not a hostile adversary. We know that your wrath for sin is great, uh, but uh, and we would not say your love for sinners is greater. That might sound poetic, but that would be wrong. Uh, but that wrath has been quenched upon the cross. That wrath has been exercised. Uh, quenched might even be too strong to put it, but it has been exercised. Your wrath, uh, for, your wrath uh, as one of your attributes is as eternal as your love, but it is satisfied. There is the word. It is satisfied on the cross. Uh, just as your love uh, terminates and is satisfied by the same act. Uh, there is a glory that is found there uh, that, that heaven will never exhaust. It is a theme that will always amaze us and take up uh, our songs and our praises. A great mystery, we are told, that the angels even uh, long to look into. How is it that God should become man and become their savior and die for them and stand in their midst as their savior as one who was crucified and raised? There is the wonder of the ages, and that will be the wonder of heaven. The eternity of heaven's life will be taken up with that single theme. Father, we never grow tired of it. We never, uh, we never look beyond it because the glory and the majesty of your grace and your love and your mercy and your judgment, all of your attributes shine most brightly there. It is uh, the theologian of the cross, Luther says, not the theologian of glory, who, who sees the hidden glory and uh, who sees the true glory that is hidden in the cross. Uh, concealed though magnified it is a mystery which we only behold by faith and uh, dear lord we we continue to praise you for it Uh, it is something uh, as i say that we never move past we never grow tired of it is a theme which thank uh thanks to your word and the book of hebrews we are able to consider and to unfold and to expound uh more and more and more and may it ever be our theme O god We ask you that we would then, as Luther says, be theologians of the cross, or as Paul says, those who glory in the cross, though it is shameful to the world, it's glorious to us and all the things that excite and 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 are glorious in the eyes of the world. May they be shameful to us by comparison of the great things you have done. And so, God, we come together uh, to, to, as you say, in Exodus uh, to celebrate the great things you have done. That is our theme in worship. We rejoice in your act of creation. We rejoice in your act of salvation, both in the old and the new covenants. God, thank you for delivering Israel out of Egypt. But thank you even more, Emmanuel, that you should come unto us as our savior. And you delivered us out of the bondage of sin, which is a far greater bondage. And yet, in some ways, we aren't all that different from Israel and Egypt. We we look for a spiritual deliverance, but we also think of temporal deliverance as well. God, we don't want our life on earth to be one of uh, nonstop misery and persecution. And thanks to your grace, it isn't. But we don't want to enter into that. Uh, we ask you, O oh God, that you would continue to exercise and show your mercy in this world and even raise up temporal deliverers, if only uh, to preserve and to protect the church in her free exercise of worship. And so we know you've set up governors and presidents and, and kings and those in authority. We might sometimes be bound to resent it, but your scripture tells us not to. We may resent the ruler. I, I don't think that is wrong, but we should never resent the presence of government. That is biblical. 
God, give us a proper view of such things and, and hear our prayers for them, that they may be to us ministers of righteousness and protectors of the church, uh, protectors of our liberty, protectors of our worship, uh, not our enemies and our adversaries. May they truly be, as our confession speaks, nursing fathers who look after the welfare of the church, not by interfering and meddling in her work, uh, but by simply allowing her to do her work. And Father, as we find ourselves in the church uh, doing that work, we pray we might do so with all of our might. If, if, if the events of this year have had any positive effect, and surely they have, though we struggle to see it at times, it is that we have a greater sense than ever of the priority of worship and the reason of worship. Uh, so many Christians have found uh, in these times an excuse to stay home, or at least so-called Christians. But Father, we confess to you our great desire to worship you, even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of political upheavals, uh, even in the midst of all the things that mark the, the last days in which we live. And we pray that more and more we would see the centrality of the church, not the church, as some say, as unessential or non-essential. God in heaven to us, the church is the most essential thing of all. And not just for our sakes, but for the world, for how can the world go on without the church? How will the darkness not set in completely unless the light is shining and how will corruption not completely take over unless the salt offers a little preservation? And so, Father, you set us up for this purpose and we're meant to fully embrace this purpose. Let us be salt and light, gracious Father. Let us realize our purpose is salt and light. And let us have great zeal uh, to, to preserve and to illumine a dark world. The amazing thing is that you don't tell us to do anything. You just tell us to be what we are. You just tell us to be salt and light and to realize that we are. In other words, as we gather together, O Lord, and worship you and take up the work of Christian ministry amongst ourselves, we are shining and we are preserving. As we refuse as a Christian church to give in to the spirit of the age, our light is shining and our salt is preserving. God, we pray that the world would not uh, come in and take away our saltiness. And, and dampen our light or that we as as foolish Christians would put our light under a basket. But let us boldly realize our purpose and go forth uh, preaching all of uh, the things in your word and fully realizing all of the good things that you have for the Christian, even if that should mean persecution, because that, too, is called something good. And so there isn't anything that you have for us as a church in relation to the world that we could call evil. Everything you are overruling for good. And let us be afraid of none of it, O Lord, and boldly face uh, whatever should come our way as a church. But then, gracious Father, as we close our prayer, we remember those words you taught us to say. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, as a scripture reading, I want to look at Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, which is, in many ways, uh, a prelude to what we have at the end of chapter 9. There's also in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, a similar emphasis. The emphasis being that Christ is our great high priest has entered into heaven itself. And it behooves us as a church to recognize what that means, what his ministry there consists of, just as we wish to know what his ministry on the cross consists of. 
And so this gives us a glimpse into heaven. Hebrews chapter 8 verses 1 through 5 and then a little later on chapter 9. Now the main point of what, we, what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also has something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. And thus far, the word of God, let us stand together and sing the doxology. And then turn with me, please, to the back of your hymnal, page 636, Psalter Selection, number 39, which is Psalm 80. Again, page 636, Selection 39, which is Psalm 80. And I'll read the unbolded if you would read together with me the bolded sections. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, thou that dwellest between the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up thy strength and come and save us. Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. O Lord God of hosts, How long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? Thou feedest them with the bread of tears. Thou givest them tears to drink in great measure. Thou makest us strife unto our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine and we shall be saved. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it and didst cause it to take deep root and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it and the bows thereof were like the goodly cedars. She sent out her bows unto the sea and her branches unto the river. Why hast thou then broken down her hedges so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her. The boar out of the wood doth waste it, and the wild beast of the field doth devour it. Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven, and behold, and visit this vine. 
and the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted, and the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. It is burned with fire, and is cut down. It perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, and upon the son of man whom thou madest strong for thyself. So will not we go back from thee. Quicken us, and we will call upon thy name. Turn us again, O God of hosts. Cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Let us now stand together and sing hymn number 42. there in that hymn, A Glimpse into Heaven, uh, so too in this passage. Not a perfect glimpse, but a glimpse. So uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28, as we conclude uh, our look at Hebrews chapter 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, 
But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as uh, the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. And let us pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word. We ask you that, uh, as that is a powerful word to save, so it would go forth through the, the, the preaching, following the reading, uh, that the sense of it might be given to the people as with Ezra, and that we might gain a better grasp of not only the sense of the words, but of the power of the words. And might we indeed begin to feel them now through worship. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've been indicating, uh, even though we had a bit of a break for one uh, for one sermon, and we'll do that from time to time, if there's something particularly pressing, I might stop and speak about that, as we did with the civil magistrate. But here we are uh, once again in the midst of a series within a series, and that would be what we have in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 28, a major section, which is uh, too major, I would say, for the purposes of preaching. Uh, and so we've had to break it up uh, under three headings, and we're on the final of these. Chapter 9, verses 11 through 28, is all about the blood of the covenant by which Jesus enters into the Holy of Holies, even heaven itself. But there you see the major idea uh, exists or expounds three major ideas. And we have thus far considered two of them, the blood and the covenant, which in the second section, verses 15 through 28, is called the blood of the covenant. But we must consider the final of these, namely the heavenly tabernacle, uh, which was actually the initial thought of this section. If you look at verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained uh, eternal redemption, which is in reality a fitting summary of everything that follows. All three ideas being present there, but you see the idea of the tabernacle is. And so he really begins and he concludes with the idea of the tabernacle. Certainly that's the the emphasis of chapter 9, verse 23 through 28. And he begins by speaking of a necessity. Therefore, it was necessary. Something he's done uh, from time to time throughout the epistle. Let us feel the the force of the word it was or, or necessary. Uh, before we consider what was necessary. He wants us to see that there was nothing arbitrary or optional about Christ's entry into heaven and the means of his entry, which was a sprinkling of blood, as we'll see. In all of this, God was acting in a way that was necessary. Yes, even God is constrained by necessity. He cannot just save man in any way. He must save in a way that is consistent with his own glory, lest our salvation fall short of that. And I think we all would agree that that would be no salvation at all. If God should seek to save, to even speak of such a thing 
in a way that fell short of his own glory. No, it was necessary, the writer is saying. And soon, as soon as we realize it is God who is acting and God who is saving on behalf of the people, we recognize, yes, it was necessary for the salvation he brings to be consistent with his own glory, his own perfection, his own justice, his own righteousness. And so it was necessary, we see here, that just as the earthly tabernacle was sprinkled by blood, so too the heavenly, verses 23 and 24. Therefore, it was necessary for the copy of the heavenly things uh, to be cleansed with these. Uh, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. We also find here a familiar line of reasoning, not merely that of divine necessity, but also uh, that of uh, a comparison. That what was true of the earthly is not only true of the heavenly as well, but doubly true. There is an even greater necessity. If Christ should enter heaven, then not only must he do so through a sacrifice and a shedding and sprinkling of blood, but with better sacrifices and better blood than was found in uh, the old covenant. That is to say, if he is to appear in heaven for us as our priest, then he must do so on the basis of his own blood, both shed and sprinkled. That is the essence of the argument here. But let me make three observations about this. And the first is that his entry is marked by cleansing. We've already seen that, but let us try to understand what that means and what that involves. It is in many ways uh, the most remarkable statement that Jesus, like Moses, not only sprinkles the vessels that were to uh, occupy the tabernacle and the people whom he was to represent in the tabernacle, speaking of the high priest of the old covenant, but that he sprinkles the tabernacle itself with his own blood. The tabernacle here being spoken of is heaven itself. What he is actually saying is that the tabernacle would be an unfit place of worship for us if he did not mark his entry by sprinkling and cleansing of his own blood. And so the argument being Christ did not enter a heavenly or an earthly tabernacle, excuse me, but heaven itself. And this being the case, the need for sprinkling was not less but greater. We might be inclined to argue in reverse. Since he entered into heaven, there was no need to sprinkle the tabernacle. It isn't what we find here. What we find is that because he entered the greater tabernacle, there was a need for a better sacrifice and thus a better blood and a better sprinkling. Which is what he means when he says the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. If the earthly needed to be opened up by the sprinkling of earthly sacrifices. The heavenly must be opened up with a better sacrifice and thus a better sprinkling. But that is not to say, lest we be in any confusion here. That the heavenly holies, holy of holies was itself unclean and in need of cleansing. One of the things I noticed in my study of this passage in examining this idea is that some of the commentators were in great difficulty here. In fact, one of the best commentators I have been using uh, was in so much difficulty over this thought that he cleanses the heavenly tabernacle by sprinkling his blood that he offered many alternatives uh, but he never landed on any of them. 
He simply left the problem with the reader, which you'll sometimes do. Uh, that isn't my intention here. I do not think the idea is so difficult that uh, there is no solution. In fact, I would say the solution to the question or the problem is obvious. The author here is not speaking of heaven as a place that is unclean. It's a point I'll make under the second heading. Quite the opposite. It is not as though Christ's blood was necessary to make heaven clean. Rather, he is speaking as with the old covenant and the old priest as the sprinkling of blood and the cleansing of blood as the means by which the priest is able to enter on behalf of sinners. And we might add further under the new covenant, the means by which we now as sinners are fit to enter the holy of holies along with him. And so looking uh, at, at the old covenant and the day of, 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 of atonement as our point of comparison, which no doubt is the point of comparison here. We find there that the, whole, the high priest could not enter into the holy of holies without sprinkling of blood, sacrificing on the altar and then entering in and sprinkling the mercy seat. I'm going to read that in a moment. And as he could not enter except by this means, so too Christ as our great high priest must enter the better tabernacle by the same means and the same method. For the place he sought there, just think of it, was not so much what he held as the son of God, a place that was always his and he could never lose. I mean, a place in heaven in the presence of the father. But the place he sought by his blood, both shed and sprinkled, was that of a priest in order to appear before God for us. Verse 24. And uh, this is where the language of Leviticus chapter 14 uh, becomes relevant here. Or Leviticus, excuse me, chapter 16, verse 14. In speaking of the day of atonement, the sacrifices which were offered and the sprinkling which was required within the veil by the high priest. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat, that is, within the Holy of Holies, within the veil, on the east side. Also, in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do uh, with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And then verse 16 tells us why it was he had to cleanse that which was holy. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel. The place had to be made clean, not because it was unclean, but because he sought a place for sinners there. He is to make atonement for the holy place, we read, because of the sins of the people. And thus Christ must do the same as our priest, plain and simple. And so his entry is marked by cleansing. We really are not in so much difficulty about that point after all. But notice next uh, what is true of the tabernacle itself. We are speaking here of heaven. The place where Christ has entered to appear in the presence of God for us. We are, as I indicated earlier, uh, getting a glimpse into heaven. And we have some of those in Scripture, uh, not just here in Hebrews, uh, but we think, for instance, of what we read in the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5, which recently I read uh, in my reading of the McShane uh, reader of the Bible. Perhaps some of you read that along with me. We have glimpses into heaven, but not many. And what we see is not all that clear. 
And so I would say that this too is a most interesting point, but also a highly difficult one to make, describing what is true of the heavenly tabernacle. We keep reading that the earthly tabernacle was a copy of the heavenly. And we know what the earthly tabernacle was like. We read about its dimensions, its structure, its vessels, uh, its divisions, the ministry that occurred there in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. Soon we'll be considering that. We find it again in the prophets, and we even have a sense of it uh, in uh, the book of Revelation. We know what the earthly tabernacle was like. But what can we say about heaven as a place, let me underscore, a place where Christ Christ has entered and where he now ministers? Some of you may remember uh, Elder John Wilson's study on the subject in Sunday school. Well, for one thing, just notice the emphasis of verse 23, where this tabernacle is called the true one and heaven itself. Christ has not entered the earthly, but the true tabernacle Even heaven itself, which is, we notice immediately, very strong language, but it is still uh, somewhat mysterious and shadowy, something about which our apprehension is shadowy at best. We are, as it were, only able to apprehend heavenly realities at a distance. We catch a glimpse of them or we apprehend them like Abraham, not by sight, but by faith. We anticipate them and welcome them from afar. But again, as I say, by faith and not by sight. And so, uh, to use the language of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we see, but in a mirror dimly. What we know about heaven isn't all that clear to us, at least not as clear as it will be when we are there. Again, speaking of it as a place. And so, the truth is, there's very little we actually know or can say about heaven. It's been one of my own frustrations uh, about uh, this aspect of Christ's ministry. Uh, I want to know more. But there's only so much that scripture allows me to say. Let me try to say what I can. We know, for instance, that unlike uh, the tabernacle, in radical contrast to its utterly transient nature, it was in fact a tabernacle which they were able to carry along with them in the wilderness to break down and set up and so forth. That this structure is eternal. It is unmade. It has no beginning or end. It is a permanent structure. Which is to say heaven abides. But what is equally true and what is more important to stress about heaven is that God as the Lord of heaven abides there too. Heaven is his abode. It is the place of his dwelling. It is the place where his glory shines in unfading splendor. Unlike the tabernacle where we read at the end of Exodus where the Lord's glory rushed in. God's glory needs no entry. It is always there. In fact, we may only speak of it as heaven, as a place of blessedness and uh, divine heavenly life because the Lord is there. And so uh, when it is said here that Jesus is our high priest entered into heaven. What we read is that uh, he appeared in the presence of God for us. This is where God dwells. This is where his presence may be found. This is where he is to use the language of the old covenant and the old tabernacle where he is seated forever on the mercy seat. Or as Hebrews calls it, the throne of grace in Hebrews chapter four or the throne of his majesty. Hebrews chapter eight. And so we must see heaven as corresponding to the Holy of Holies in the, in the old tabernacle. 
A place of perfect purity and holiness. A place uh, where no unclean thing was able to enter in or to dwell. A place that is to say where sinners are not fit to dwell. A place, uh, once more, of righteousness and divine life. A place of perfect blessedness and peace. Nothing unclean, nothing unpure can ever enter in or dwell in the heavenly holy of holies. And it is here, the true tabernacle, that we read, Christ has entered for us as our great high priest. And he appears before the throne of God. God there seated on the mercy seat. And there he as our high priest not only enters but he dwells. He dwells forever along with the father. In the presence of the father. Even enthroned with him. There his place is not temporary. It is permanent. Which was if you remember the whole emphasis of chapter 7. That the heavenly ministry of Christ is eternal. He is able verse 25 to save Forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. But not only is it eternal. So you think of the son standing in the presence of the father as our high priest. His place there is an acceptable one. He hasn't forced his way in, beloved. He has a right to be there. He has every right to be there. It is the will of the father that he should be there. You remember something we considered earlier in an earlier sermon. His place as a priest comes by divine appointment. He does not stand there against the will of the Father, but in accordance with the will of the Father. God delights in his service and in his priesthood. God is pleased and satisfied with the blood he offers. And so Christ is able to dwell there. And the Father delights that he should dwell there. And because the place he assumes there is that of a priest... That is to say, as a representative appearing before God for us, as he says in verse 24. That tells us that we too are able to enter and that our place along with his is an acceptable one. The throne of God becomes to us not a place of wrath and animosity as it will be to the sinner on the last day. But it becomes to us in Christ the throne of grace, the mercy seat, a place where sinners through Christ, are invited to come through the heavenly priesthood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. I've read these again and again. Uh, They bring together all of the lines of thought in the book of Hebrews. You don't understand what he's saying unless you're able to say, therefore, let us enter in and draw near. This is what he says. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 16 Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 10, verse 19. Shortly, uh, we will take this up. Another fitting summary of the whole epistle. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you understand the privileges which flow to the believer through the heavenly high priesthood of Jesus Christ? And there, as he appears in the presence of God for us, we find a God not full of wrath and hostility, as I say, 
but full of grace, mercy, love and truth. And the nearer we approach by faith, the more we discover this to be so. Not the less. The more it appears to us that God and I are reconciled. And that the Father has no wrath for me. Only love. For all that we find in Christ in his earthly ministry is carried forward and perfected in his heavenly ministry of intercession. All of the blessings, all of the graces, all of the mercy and love you find in him on earth. So you will find carried forward and perfected in heaven. As Hugh Martin says, every active principle that we find in his oblation on the cross, when carried through the eternal spirit, uh, he offered, when through the eternal spirit, excuse me, he offered himself without spot, continues uninterruptedly in his heavenly ministry of intercession. The grace and the love which Christ has for sinners, beloved, does not terminate on the cross. But it is carried forward into heaven. Do you find, I ask you, a merciful and gracious Savior on the cross? You will find him so in heaven, only more so. When he sprinkles the heavenly tabernacle with his own blood, shed on the cross, and stands there as our high priest forever, ministering ministering in the presence of God for us, he declares to us, This place is a place where grace may be found and found in abundance. Whatever is found in the Gospels, whatever is found in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, whatever is found preeminently at Calvary may be found here. Grace, mercy, love, truth, power to save to the uttermost. Let us learn what it is to deal with our heavenly intercessor. But that brings me to a final point. In speaking of Christ in this way, as he has appeared in heaven, one of the things that we notice, not only in chapter 9, but especially in chapter 9, verses 23 through 28, is the way his entrance into heaven is described in terms of the divine scheme of salvation. In other words, in speaking of his appearance in heaven, he reminds us of two further appearances. He speaks of the gospel in its totality, both in terms of uh, his earthly appearance, his heavenly appearance, and then his second earthly appearance. You find all three in uh, the present passage. And though they occur out of order, let me uh, present them to you in order so that we might have a proper appreciation for how we are to think of the heavenly ministry of Jesus Christ. It occurs only after and as a result of his appearance on earth. First of all, in speaking of his heavenly appearance, verse 24 And also verses 11 and 12. He reminds us in verses 26 and 28 that he first appeared on earth. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested or appeared. He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Also, verse 28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Well, the first time he appeared, obviously, was to put away sin, he says. And so that was the reason for his coming. To bear sin, using the language of verse 28. To make an offering, using the language of verse 26. To bring in atonement, in a way the old sacrifices never could. That is, to bring in remission. To open up access into heaven. To put away sin, not often, but once for all, by the sacrifice of himself. That is why he appeared. This was, as John declares, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. But it's fascinating to see here once again 
uh, our author doing what he had done in the prior section, and that is to make uh, a general and a special allusion. He alludes, first of all, to that which Christ shares in common, just as he had done with uh, the, the covenant. The covenant, he says, uh, is, is only uh, in effect, or the will comes only uh, to the recipients only when a death has occurred. Uh, that's verses 16 and 17 of the prior section. And the, the heirs of the inheritance only come into their inheritance when a man dies. He appeals to, to the general. He does the same thing here. It, it, in as much as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. I remember uh, we did uh, a little Ray Comfort series in Sunday school. And I remember Ray Comfort, uh, I once watched him doing an evangelistic sermon. Uh, and he quoted this in an evangelistic setting. And I can't say I'm certain that he used it properly. I don't think uh, this is so much an evangelistic message uh, that it is appointed for you to die and then face judgment. As much as it is an explanation of the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He is explaining to us why it is that death was final, never to be repeated in terms of uh, our own deaths as men. All men, he says, are appointed to die and then face judgment. Death is seen here not only as what is common to all flesh and as something which is therefore final, never to be repeated. We don't die twice. We die but once, but also in its connection with judgment as the wages of sin. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. That's the confirmation that he dies once for all. It is not ever to be repeated. And so Christ dies not often, but once. His death is judicial. It is final. It is once for all. It is the penalty and the wages of sin. But recognize what is special in his death, along with the covenant. God's covenant shares some things in common with men, but far greater are the things which are special to it. For Jesus to die, to sacrifice himself on the cross and shed his blood, offering it to God on our behalf, belongs in another category. It is something altogether different uh, than the death of any man. It is not only unlike the animal sacrifices found at the altar of the old covenant, which were not only subhuman, but they were also repeated. But it is unlike anything you could find among angels and men. To use the language of the hymn we just sung two services ago, the hymn of Charles Wesley. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? It is, you see, uh, when we speak of it as that which is special, something or a matter, rather, of wonder and amazement. And that is how we should always view it. Not that which is common, but that which is extraordinary. We cannot think of the, the death of Christ in any other way. Not that blood was shed and a man died. It was that God became man and shed his blood for me. And can it be, Wesley says, that I should gain an interest in that blood? Well, then I know I must be saved. I know that blood need only be shed once and once for all. And not only for me, you see, he also says, not Wesley now, but the author, but all who came before me and after, for there is in his death an efficacy, a power to save, which is effective in all ages, not only my own, which is what uh, he indicates when he says in verse 26, 
Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It wasn't necessary for Christ to die over and over and over again because men sin in, uh, in every successive age. His one death is enough to cover the sins of the saints in every age. But you see, things do not end there. His work as a priest is not done when the work of offering is finished. He also appeared in heaven. And that, as we've seen, is the main burden of the text. Christ appeared or he entered in heaven as my advocate in the presence of the the Father. Verse 11, when Christ appeared. Verse 24, Christ did not enter the holy place made with hands, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the, the presence of God for us. He's appeared in heaven. What I want to stress here is the way that point is presented. Not to consider his heavenly ministry merely. In fact, we already did that. But to see that work in connection with what he offers. To see his appearance in heaven not only as that which follows, but as the direct result of his appearance on earth to put away sin. To see his heavenly ministry of intercession in connection with his earthly work of offering, which is exactly how it is presented here. Let me read it again and you will see that. Therefore, it was necessary for the copy of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now... Once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, in his description, which uh, admittedly is the burden of the text, of his heavenly appearance, he is making constant reference to his earthly sacrifice. And so they are seen in connection with each other, not as two separate works, but as two prongs of the same work. But he is clear that he appears in heaven not to offer. That isn't the point. He isn't like the priests of old who are constantly offering. When Christ enters into heaven, he does so on the basis of the merits of his once for all offering. He does not enter in to offer, but to intercede. Yes, but his intercession there is but, as I have said, a carrying forth of the same power and energy that was present in what he offered. The work of intercession, therefore, is not a new work, but the same work carried forward into a new arena, not earth, but heaven. The same energy that animated his earthly dying on the cross now animates his heavenly intercession, for he is driven there into heaven by the same desire that drove him to the cross, namely a desire to save and to help and to offer grace. Once again, Hugh Martin, every active principle that was in operation in Emmanuel's soul on the cross passes over without a break and blends into the permanent function of intercession. All that he did on the cross, he does in heaven. That is every principle which animated his soul and led him there. And as he does so, he is met, let us be clear once more, with the same love and acceptance which the Father had for the Son in his earthly ministry. 
The same words of loving approval and acceptance uttered while he dwelt among us are uttered there. You remember, he says twice, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Indicating not only his pleasure in his person as the son of God, but equally and perhaps more importantly, as he took up the work of a priest and as the savior of sinners, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As a priest who takes up this work, the father's words uttered there equally had reference to that. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The work which he partakes and fulfills gives me great pleasure. And so when we find Christ in heaven appearing before the father for us, we must conceive of that work along the same lines. The work of intercession As a work which is intimate and loving, an exchange between the Father and the Son. In fact, the most intimate and loving exchange that can be conceived. In all that the Son is and presents to the Father, the Father accepts and declares, This is the work of my own beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And my pleasure flows not only to him, but all that he brings to me. His work, his offering, his sheep, his intercession for them. And so our place there is made an acceptable one as well. For his intercession makes it so. And it is on this basis that we are encouraged to draw near. Again, that Christ is there for me. And that the Father delights and accepts the work and the person of the Son. And so me in him. But lest we think that Christ has gone into heaven never to appear again. He reminds us lastly that he will appear on earth a second time. Verse 28, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him or await him. Just as he appeared, he says, on earth a first time to deal with sin, he appeared with sin or with reference to sin. And so from there he went to the Father to appear in his presence on our behalf and minister there continually as our high priest and intercessor. So he will appear a second time, not with sin or for sin, since he both bore and dealt with sin finally in his first appearing on the cross, but without sin and with salvation as a perfect and full gift. There and then it will appear to us how fully he dealt with sin there on the cross in his first appearance. As John Calvin says, at his second coming, he will make openly manifest the efficacy of his death. Christ at his coming will make it known how truly and really he had taken away sins. We need not look, in other words, beloved, for a further work of atonement. That work has been offered once for all. Sin has been put away. He has brought in remission. And never will that appear to us so gloriously and so clearly as it will on the last day when he appears. When he comes again, he will come not with sin nor with reference to sin, but with salvation. He will bring the fullness of salvation in his hand to those who eagerly wait for him. You see, he describes us like that. We are looking for him to come again. And then we will see with perfect clarity The work which he has done for us in his first and second appearing, both, uh, I mean, both in both on earth and in heaven. And so all of it, uh, to tie it up, is an encouragement to the church. Everything he's been saying, 
Uh, and it, it occurred to me as I was uh, administering the Lord's Supper that we find all three aspects and all three appearings in the Lord's Supper. We'll consider that in just a moment. But let's do it here. Let's begin to do it. Here is the task of the church as we relate to Jesus Christ and his priesthood. As we, uh, like Israel, are wandering in the wilderness hoping to enter the promised land. And the only hope we ever have of getting there is to have a great high priest like Jesus. Consider him first as he came, the sin bearer. Recognize how fully and finally he dealt with sin on the cross. How fully uh, the Father has accepted that work on our behalf. And so consider him now as he is as our heavenly intercessor in heaven. And deal with him constantly there. Look for grace to help in time of need. As he ministers grace from heaven. But don't leave him there in heaven. As wonderful as it is. Consider him as he will be appearing from heaven, bringing the fullness of salvation to his church. And let our view of his priesthood uh, include all three and nothing less than that. And you notice finally how he is, in effect, describing the church here. He is describing the church in her wanderings, not only in her relation to the Lord, uh, but uh, by an implicit admonition. Those who eagerly await him. Is that true of you? Is that true of your pilgrimage as you pass through this weary land, a world and a a place which we confess is not our home? Our home is in heaven. Do we recognize how we will get there and what stands in between? The great thing that we are looking forward to as Christian people is that Christ should appear again from heaven, even as he stands in the presence of the father and has uh, and has left this earth to go uh, to him. So he will return to us again. Is that your hope? Is that what animates your worship? Not just that Christ has come, but that he is coming. Let us be sure in our earthly pilgrimage that we are eagerly looking for his appearing from heaven. There is the admonition. There is the encouragement to the church. Let us conceive of Christ in the fullness of his heavenly priesthood and his high priesthood on our behalf. And know that whoever places his hope in him will not be ashamed when he comes again in glory. And with those thoughts, I would invite the elders to join me at the table. read what Luke has to say and then look for the same three elements. And then I have a few things to say about each. Uh, Luke 22, verse 14. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after he had eaten, saying, after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my in my blood. Well, uh, we we see there clearly All three appearances uh, referenced Uh, one, not so clearly, but it's there. And that would be the emphasis actually of our text. And that is his his present heavenly ministry. The first thing Christ references is uh, his work on the cross. We are to behold here a crucified savior. 
Uh, but unlike the Roman Catholics, uh, we are not to see a, an, a, a new offering for sin. We are in this rather to celebrate and rejoice and participate in Christ's once for all offering for sin. Which brings me to the second appearance. He has appeared in heaven for us. And how is it that he ministers grace to us from heaven? One of the ways is our constant participation in the Lord's Supper. And there are the merits of his blood and the forgiveness of sins which he secured and the assurance of forgiveness uh, all flow to the believer by faith. But thirdly, you notice he also says that by this meal we are to look forward to the great banquet, which is to occur at the end of the age and described Uh, In Revelation chapter 19, even now we are to be preparing ourselves for it as the bride of Christ and looking forward to it. For one day, unlike this temporary fading meal, we will enjoy an eternal banquet with him in heaven. Uh, And so uh, in in the uh, in what we lack, let me say with reverence, uh, we will be filled up to the full measure in heaven. Uh, The things we deal with here, even the best things are but passing away, uh, but they make us in their very uh, in their very lack uh, to look forward to the things which abide in heaven. Uh, and so we are looking not only for a little bit of grace here, but we are looking forward to the fullness of salvation, which he will bring to us on the last day. With all of that said, uh, I issue an encouragement to every Christian to partake of the Lord's Supper. That is to partake of Christ, to partake of him crucified, to look forward with eagerness uh, as he will come again and even to deal with him now as he is in heaven, as as he ministers grace through these appointed means. Uh, but I also issue a warning, and that is to say anyone who does not have this hope, anyone who regards this even as a Christian as a common meal, not as that which is sacred uh, and by faith dealing with a crucified and risen and ascended savior who will come again in glory then the table is not to you a symbol of salvation, but a symbol of judgment. And so let us take care how we partake. Let us be sure that we partake in a worthy manner that is not as people who are personally righteous, but those who by faith look to Christ as our Savior. And if this is a token of that saving work, then I encourage you heartily to come and to partake. And with that said, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of the Lord's Supper. We recognize that no man is worthy in himself to come, but by faith, Christ gives us the faith to come and to partake of him and even to find uh, in a small piece of bread and a small cup of wine tokens uh, and manifestations of his love and perfect sacrifice. Jesus, we ask you to minister to the church through this means to strengthen our faith, to give us courage to face whatever we might face in the days to come, and that you would give us a distinct sense of our identity in distinction from the world, that we belong not to Satan, but we belong to you. And that you are marking us out by your own blood. And we ask this in your name. Amen. And so beginning then with the bread, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name. Give this bread to you.
Our Lord Jesus said, take eat, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Our Lord, uh, in the same manner, our Savior also took the cup and having given thanks as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name, give this cup to you. And as a reminder, the outer ring is wine, the inner is grape juice. Our Lord Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Now, as we close out our worship, let us stand together and sing hymn number 188.
now the grace of uh, the Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.